Good morning. Let's pray together. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Father, we want to give glory to you this morning because of your great love and faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. I pray that we would receive it with gladness and apply it in our lives that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every now and then, someone will ask me, what business are you in? You, know, you sit next to somebody on an airplane or something, and so conversation gets around to it. What, what business are you in? And uh, often I'll just reply, well, I'm a pastor. And, and it's, it's kind of like this conversation killer, you know? It's like saying, well, I'm a leper, you know? And, and uh, it just kind of quits the conversation right there. And, and so I've, I've tried to think of more creative responses. And so here are a few that I've come up with. Uh, what, what business are you in? Well, I help people sort their lives out. Now that can get a little bit of a conversation going. Or uh, I help people find meaning in life. That might get some conversation started. I help people grow in their relationship with God. That zeroes in a little bit. My favorite one, I use this on an airplane. I lead a franchise of a worldwide organization that's working on solutions to the ultimate problems of humankind. <laughs> we had a great conversation. <laughs> so how about you? Got any snappy answers when somebody asks you what business you're in? I've got a friend who does estimates uh, for hanging gutters on people's houses and businesses, and when they say, what, what business are you? And he goes, my life is in the gutters. You know, got any snappy answers when somebody asks you? What if somebody asked you what business River Hills is in? What's our business? What are we here for? What are we about? And some would say, well, that's easy. It's evangelism. We have a great commission to fulfill. We're supposed to be bringing people to Christ. Others would say, no, no, it's, it's missions. It's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's missions. You can't fulfill the Great Commission if you're not going to where the gospel has never been heard before. Someone else might say, well, no, actually, it's discipleship. The Great Commission is all about discipleship. The, the active imperative verb in that is make disciples, and so we need to make disciples. And when we do make disciples, they will naturally share their faith with others and the Great Commission will be fulfilled. So what's our business? What business are we in? Those answers are, are good, but they're not it. They're not it. They're not our main business. There is something even more vital than evangelism, even more vital than missions, even more vital than disciple-making. Know what it is? I'll give you a hint. It's something we will do in heaven. We won't be doing evangelism in heaven. We won't be doing missions in heaven. We won't be doing disciple-making in heaven. There's something that we will be doing in heaven, and we'll be doing it forever, and it's worship. It's worship. Evangelism exists because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. 
And worship will motivate the making of disciples and will fill them with joy that will make them want to grow in their faith. The main business of the church is is worship. Now, I haven't always had such a high view of the importance of worship, probably because my own experience of worship growing up was pretty shallow. I think that until the last 30 years or so, worship wasn't a very, very high on a whole lot of people's lists. When I was in seminary, uh, they offered an elective class in worship. We had a lot of required courses. We had a few slots for electives, and there was this elective course on worship. I didn't take it, and a lot of other people didn't take it as well. In fact, I think you could have pretty well held the class in a phone booth. It just wasn't a very popular subject back then. We all thought of worship as three hymns and a sermon. And if you had a good sermon and sang hymns everybody liked, well, you had good worship. And that wasn't just the attitude of seminary students either. It characterized the vast majority of people in the church as well. I was chairman of uh, the worship committee in a church plant back in the early 80s, and I thought I'd do something creative with this new committee. And so I asked the committee to join me in a little exercise we did at, at one of our meetings. I said, imagine that we're living in Philippi. The year is 51 A.D., The Apostle Paul has just planted our church, he's given us some instruction, and now he has moved on, and this committee is in charge of planning the very first worship service. What will we include in that service? I thought that was a pretty good setup. I thought, you know, that allowed for a lot of creativity, you know, we could do most anything we wanted, and I was really eager for a great discussion to take place. And this one dear old Swede on the committee said, well, you got to have a good sermon. That was his idea of good worship. Good worship is more than a good sermon. Worship is our total response to who God is and to what he's done for us in Christ. Worship is vital to the Christian life. Show me a person who isn't involved in worship corporate and personal, and I'll show you someone who is in danger of drying up spiritually. And we get a glimpse of the priority of worship when we look at Ezra chapter 3. There we see what was foremost on the minds of the settlers as they returned to Jerusalem. So let's take a walk through the passage together, and there we will see the priority of worship. So grab your Bibles, if you would. Let's walk through this passage together. Look at verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, when you see that phrase, they gathered as one man, you know that it implies coming together for a very significant purpose. And usually that purpose is war. Throughout the Old Testament, when you see they gathered together as one man, they're generally getting ready to march out to war. But we need to ask what it was that brought them together as one man here in this setting. The people gathered as one man 
to Jerusalem. Well, it wasn't war. There was no battle that they were joining at this point. And they didn't come together as one man to rebuild the city walls. That might make their community feel safer, but that wasn't why they joined together as one man. And it wasn't even to build the temple, to have a place of worship, to restore Solomon's temple from the rubble that it had been reduced to. They came together to build the altar. Look at verse 2. Then arose Jeshua, son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They came together to build the altar. In other words, worship came before security the rebuilding of the city walls. Worship even came before a building to worship in, the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, the people would offer sacrifices for seven months on this altar with no wall to protect them from their enemies, even though they were nervous about those enemies. And they would do that for seven months before beginning to lay the foundation for the temple at verse 3, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. No wall. Now, the wall around the city would have to wait until after the temple was built, and we'll read about that in Nehemiah chapter 3. So imagine the conversations that may have taken place. Hey, guys, I, I know worship's important, but look, we, we need to rebuild the walls around the city before we build this altar. We're not safe, okay? Let's, let's build the walls. Sounds reasonable. What's the answer to that concern? Psalm 33, verses 17 and 18 says, The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great strength, great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. You hear what that's saying? Our security isn't in our fortifications. Our security won't come by building a wall. Our security is in our relationship with God. We need to establish worship before we need to rebuild walls. Another conversation might have said, well, um, an altar's fine, but look, we need to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple was the most beautiful building on earth. It, it, it brought people to God. It, it lies in ruins. Uh, what does its lying in ruins say about our concern for God? The answer, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. It's the function of worship that's most important to establish. The place of worship is of lesser importance. As a community of faith, our highest priority is to be a worshiping community. 
We are that before we are anything else. It's not saying we don't do anything else, but our primary identity is that of a worshiping community. We were created to worship. It's why God made us. He made us to worship him. Now, does that sound egotistical? For God to make us in order that we might worship him? It isn't if you're God. In fact, it's the most loving and giving thing he could do to give us the privilege of knowing him and loving him and worshiping him. And it's not just something we do on Sunday mornings. When we find our delight in him all week long, he gets the glory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, right? Worship celebrates our relationship with God. Worship motivates our service to God. And worship is the one thing we will do forever. When God's people returned from exile to their homeland, the first thing they sought to do was to reestablish worship. For them, that meant taking up the feasts again, together with their sacrifices. And interestingly, the first feast they took up was the Feast of Booths. Look at verse 4. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, we may have heard. That feast was celebrated originally to commemorate the Exodus, to remember when they came out of bondage in Egypt, and they lived in tents, tabernacles, booths, huts, lean-tos, these, these temporary dwellings. And so in the Feast of Booths, they would live in them again to remember that time and to commemorate God's deliverance. And now, here they are coming back into the land after another period of captivity. What a celebration it must have been. God had provided for their ancestors some 900 years earlier, and now he was providing for them. It was fitting that they should start with the Feast of Booths. And they resumed all the regular sacrifices that accompanied their worship, even though the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. Look at verses 5 and 6. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Worship before walls. Worship before the temple. There is no greater thing than to be in a right relationship with God and to know him and to delight in him and to express to him the desire and the love of our heart. That's why we were made for worship, and that's why we will worship him forever and never get tired of it. 
Our worship leaders here do their best to put together good services of worship. But unless the highest value of our life is our relationship with God, we won't enter into that worship or get very much out of it. But every now and then, we get just a glimpse of true worship. Something happens. Something uh, maybe not printed in the program. Something happens and the Spirit of God breaks through to us and we enter into worship in a way that's got to be like what it's going to be like when we're with him in glory. And that is one of the most amazing and wonderful experiences we can have. I got a glimpse of it once when I walked into the Metro Dome in Minneapolis and heard 70,000 men singing, crown him with many crowns. It was one of the most amazing experiences I have had in my life. I found myself thinking, it's not fair that I get to experience this, this side of heaven. It was just a glimpse of, of that glory that's going to be our experience in heaven. I've gotten just a glimpse of it as well at the close of an ordinary worship service when I've just stayed in my seat as others were leaving so that I could quietly do business with God because he had been speaking to my heart in that worship service. And sometimes it's happened when it's been just the two of us, God and me, meeting early in the morning and I find my strength for my day in him. Listen to the words of some hymn writers who have tried to express this thing that goes beyond expression. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. The, the very best bliss, the very best experiences that earth can bring us leaves us feeling unfulfilled and we turn to him to find that fulfillment. Or this one, Jesus' priceless treasure, source of purest pleasure, dearest friend to me. Oh, those are rich Words that speak of a rich experience in worship. Or this one, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Or this one. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain it the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Or this, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is 
no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. There is no greater thing. That's why worship had to be the first thing that the people would establish when they returned from the exile. And that's why worship has to be the highest priority for us today. But even better than that, there is a joy to be found in our worship today that, that could not yet be found back in the days of Ezra. You'll notice they started this cycle of sacrifices again to deal with their sins. This endless cycle of sacrifice after sacrifice. Always the specter of their sin hanging over them. And there would always be the need for yet another sacrifice. Can you imagine the response if you were to tell them that one day, one day, they could worship without needing to continually sacrifice animal after animal. If you told them that one day the perfect sacrifice would be made once for all, and then they could just enter into worship pure and direct and rich and full and free, they probably wouldn't believe you. They'd say, that's too good to be true. And yet that is our experience. That day has come. That's where we are. The sacrifices of the Old Testament could only point forward to the day when the true sacrifice would come, the one that would take away sin, not just cover it over. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says as he describes the futility of the sacrificial system next to its fulfillment in Christ. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Do we have a slide on that? Do we have that one? Thank you. I want us to, to notice this contrast. So you've got every priest standing daily at his service offering these sacrifices. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Priests are standing, endlessly offering these sacrifices. Christ offers for all time one sacrifice. He sits down. Why does he sit down? It's because his work was done. He had done it. He had accomplished it. It was finished. There would be no more sacrifices. And our worship is based on the one sacrifice that made full atonement for our sin, that made access to God possible. So how's your experience of worship? You see it as something you do for an hour on Sunday morning, if you do, you're likely to come here as a consumer. You're likely to be disappointed on any given week. 
we sang songs you liked, you'll leave happy. If we sang songs you didn't like, you won't. If you felt the sermon was okay, you'll leave satisfied. If you don't think it was so good, you won't. But what if Sunday morning was just a piece of a life characterized by worship? What if we saw worship as our total life response to who God is and what he's done for us in Christ? So that our delight in him showed in even the most mundane things that we do. What if we greeted every new day with appreciation for the new opportunities that it would hold for us in responding to the goodness of God? What if we greeted every new day with a sense of anticipation of what God might do through us today? What if we took some time with him at the start of our day to prepare our hearts and our minds for what's coming? What if we could then go on to prepare breakfast or to drive to work praising God? What if appreciation for God filled our conversations throughout the day? What if our delight in him showed up at the dinner table every day? What if a confidence in him held us together when everything around us was falling apart? George Mueller said this, the first and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. George Mueller, this man who founded all of these orphanages, he said, my primary business is to start my day with my soul happy in the Lord. And he would stay at it in personal devotion to God until his soul was happy in the Lord. In other words, worship came first. There is a winsomeness about people who have a heart full of worship. They see the cup half full instead of half empty. They're appreciative of simple things. They're optimistic. People want to be around them. And a church full of people like that, a church full of people with a heart of worship is a powerful thing. As we seek to build a community of faith, let me challenge you with two things in particular. First, be in personal worship yourself. Be in personal worship Yourself, Take some time to draw near to God and express your heart to him every day. Spend some time with him in his word. Spend some time with him in prayer. Spend some time with him in song. Sing it or just play it on your phone. Do that at home and then do it in your car on your way to work. It will set up your day. It will give you perspective. It will prepare you for what's in store. And second, out of that context of personal worship, come expectantly to corporate worship on Sunday morning. If you're not relating to a particular song that we're singing, can you at least rejoice that someone down the row is? If the sermon falls flat. Can you be thankful that at least it came from God's word and not from the preacher's opinions? Last week, we looked at a cycle of blessing and judgment that 
the people of the Old Testament ran through again and again and again. Here is a really simple cycle, just two components to it. Personal worship and corporate worship. One fuels the other. You find your personal worship fueling your corporate worship. You come to church filled from your personal time with God. You come here excited to join with others in worship as well. And then you draw from the richness of brothers and sisters around you who are worshiping God along with you, and that fuels your personal worship. And the cycle just goes round and round until our hearts grow large toward God and we become a community of faith that's doing the one thing we will do forever. That's the business of the church. It's worship. We're here to worship and to make worshipers. Evangelism exists because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. We're here to bring people who are far from God near to his heart and then to take people who are cold toward him and warm their hearts and also to take people who are eager to serve him and enlarge their hearts so that God will be worshiped and glorified here on earth as he is in heaven. That's the business of the church. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll make use of those throughout the week that we might be further equipped to serve him and to make worship a part of our daily life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege of worship. Thank you that you made us to worship you, and that was the most gracious thing, that you would allow us to become worshipers of the God of the universe, full of grace and mercy, powerful, infinite in wisdom. Father, we, we think of you and, and what you're like, and we just respond in worship. So I pray that that would characterize our whole life, not just our Sunday morning. So Lord, would you just make us better worshipers uh, throughout the week, that you might receive glory from the lives we live. In Jesus' name, amen.